be released and which should stay secret. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Radio 3, live on the web, rthk.org.hk. Money Talk. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Friday the 19th of August. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to Money Talk on Radio 3. Here are today's business headlines. The US and Taiwan have started talks aimed at reaching a bilateral trade agreement. The negotiations will cover agriculture and technology among 11 trade sectors in the negotiating mandate. And negotiators have been told to discuss agriculture practices and anti-corruption tactics, as well as standards on labour, the digital economy and the environment. Any agreement will also aim to address significant distortions caused by state-owned enterprises and the harm caused by non-market practices and policies, a reference to mainland China. And China is reportedly planning a 230 billion US dollar fiscal stimulus to shore up its faltering economy. The China Securities Journal reported yesterday that local governments could issue an additional 1.5 trillion yuan in special debt and bonds, utilising some of the unused bond quota from previous years to drive infrastructure investment. St. Louis Fed President James Bullard told the Wall Street Journal yesterday that he would lean towards a 75 basis point rate hike next month. He told the journal, we've got a long way to go to get inflation under control and I don't really see why you want to drag out interest rate increases into next year. And the Philippine Central Bank raised interest rates yesterday and signalled it has space to raise borrowing costs further to rein in inflation. Banco Central Filipinas raised the overnight re- reverse repurchase rate by 50 basis points to three and three quarter percent as predicted by economists. The BSP has raised rates by 175 basis points so far this year. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Ferris of Econosis Advisory and Carlos Casanova at UBP. With a view from India is Toby Lawson of Societe Generale India. On Wall Street, stocks edged higher yesterday after mixed economic data, including disappointing U.S. home sales numbers, but better-than-expected labour markets and manufacturing reports. The S&P 500 rose 0.2% to settle at 4,284. The S&P 500 is up roughly 17% from its mid-June low. The Dow, which had risen for five straight days until yesterday, added 19 points to 33,999. The Nasdaq Composite Index inched 0.2% higher to 12,965. Both the S&P 500 and the Dow are in positive territory for the week, while the Nasdaq is down 0.6% so far this week. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond closed down almost 20% after billionaire investor Ryan Cohen filed to sell his entire stake in the retailer, and the stock has fallen another 43% in after-hours trading after the sale was confirmed. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index added 0.4%. London's FTSE 100 climbed a third of a percent. Hong Kong stocks gave up early gains to end the day lower. The Hang Seng Index lost 159 points, or 0.8%, ending at 19,764. The Tech Index fell 1.1%. 
The Shanghai Composite dropped half a percent to 3,278. Property stocks fell once again with the Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index sliding 1.7%. China's biggest builder, Country Garden, tumbled over 5% after issuing a profits warning. The property developer sees preliminary first-half core profits in a range of 4.5 billion to 5 billion yuan. That's down 70% from 15.2 billion yuan a year earlier. Shares of Country Garden are down 66% so far in 2022. And the world's largest travel retailer by sales, China Tourism Group Duty Free, priced its IPO at 158 Hong Kong dollars a share, raising 2.1 billion US dollars in the largest deal in Hong Kong this year. The price is a 28% discount to its A share closing price in Shanghai on Thursday. The stocks dropped 14% this year amid COVID restrictions on the mainland, and trading will start in Hong Kong on August the 25th. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil rose over 3% to $96.59 a barrel. Gold slipped slightly to $1,758 an ounce. The yield on the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury note, that dipped two basis points to 2.89%. And the U.S. dollar is trading at its highest level since late July. The euro is almost 1% weaker this morning at just below $1.01. The Japanese yen slipped half a percent to 135.84 against the dollar. Sterling is 1% lower at $1.19 and a third cents and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 36 cents. The Chinese yuan has slipped below 6.8, trading at 6.80 and a half in offshore markets. And Bitcoin is up at $23,200. And taking a look around Asia-Pacific stock markets as they open up on the final day of the week. The SX200 in Australia is flat. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is up half a percent. The Cosby in South Korea down 0.4%. And futures markets pointing to a gain of 70 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Times 8.09 and a half for the final time this week on Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Welcome, Andrew. Good morning. And also good morning to Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at Union Boncare Privé. Morning, Carlos. Good morning, Peter. Um, the US and Taiwan have started trade talks, going to try and reach a bilateral trade agreement. Both sides say they've now reached consensus on the negotiating mandate. And the negotiations are going to cover agriculture and technology um, among 11 trade sectors in the negotiating mandate. They've also been told to address significant distortions caused by state-owned enterprises and the harm caused by non-market practices and policies, which is a clear reference there uh, to mainland China. Um, Andrew and Carlos, trade negotiations, always very political, aren't they? But I suspect these ones are going to be more political than most. Well, in, in a way, it actually shows that the Americans are completely disregarding what the Chinese have been telling them or what the Chinese would like, because this coming so close after Pelosi, uh, well, you know, the lady doth protest too much in a, in a way. Yeah, it is political. 
But there's there's nothing wrong, is there? Or there's nothing that goes against the spirit of the One China principle by having um, trade discussions. I mean, China itself has always said um, countries can have trade deals and, and trade discussions with Taiwan. So, is there anything particularly wrong with this? Um, well, not really. And also, there is nothing particularly surprising in the sense that we did see a initiative earlier this year called the Indo-Pacific Economic Partnership, and that um, was intending to revive some of the um, old uh, practices under the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So mm -hmm. from the beginning of the year, we have known that this was in the books, uh, and Pelosi did mention this during her trip. Um, but um, as Andrew rightly mentioned, um, in terms of the impact on the economy and, 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 and um, trade in the region, we, we do expect that this will be mostly symbolical. So it's absolutely going to be political. Mm. But Taiwan does have something that the US and the rest of the world needs, semiconductors. So does that give it a, a sort of a strong hand to play in trade negotiations and maybe give these negotiations extra importance? This was, this was always an issue, even in fact, when uh, the China clearly indicated that uh, uh, an invasion of Taiwan could not be accepted, although, as they repeatedly say, they would prefer a peaceful means. The question is, is uh, <laughs> the impact this would have on the chip production with uh, Taiwan producers more than 30% globally. I mean, you can't just wipe that off the map instantly. Mm. Uh, very tricky. And of course, Taiwan has got very large investments in microchip production in, in China. Carlos, this is going to be a big issue for mainland China, isn't it? It's already um, expressed its dissatisfaction at the U.S. Chips and Science Act, which it says um, is unfair and, and targets its own semiconductor industry. But I think also Beijing has made it clear or is making it clear that it's not really satisfied with the development of its own chip industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think both sides are not satisfied with the development of their own chip industry. I think the U.S. has been trying to convince Taiwanese companies to invest in semiconductor manufacturing in the U.S. heavily for many years, and that seems to have been stalled for a number of reasons. Um, so I think inevitably China is going to make this a big deal. Uh, but in practice, um, first of all, I don't think it will significantly change Taiwan's um, trade relations with either one of the markets. Remember that uh, mainland China is still the main export destination, 33% mm. of total exports or 15% of GDP, but 66% of these are semiconductors. And of course, that feeds into the global um, technology supply chain um, where final demand is in the US. So I think that is um, structural. There, There is a... a uh, a, a move towards uh, French shoring or moving some of the supply chain to other markets, but it, but it is something that is quite uh, sticky, and and so I don't think that uh, a political agreement in and of itself can uh, can shift that. Um, and moreover, uh, part of this um, Taiwan-U.S. trade deal is to allow um, Taiwanese companies to better access U.S. technology. And this has been one of the main channels by which Chinese companies acquire U.S. technology historically, because, of course, a lot of these Taiwanese companies end up um, manufacturing. Foxconn is, is a great example in, in the mainland, and some of the transfer of uh, IP happens that way. So, in fact, China stands to gain from this U.S.-Taiwan trade uh, agreement. So I think they will make a, a bit fuss about it, politically quite sensitive, um, given the timing. But in terms of the actual implications, I think they're uh, muted and it could even potentially benefit China. So I, I don't think it will 
lead to much more than just an exchange of tense words. Mm -hmm. One thing which is uh, simmering in the background and has hardly ever surfaces is, of course, in the trade of microchips, the essential part is, is the places and the companies that make the machines that make microchips. And this is really weird territory, again, because some of the places where these machines are made are really exotic, like Belgium. I mean, it's not mm. most and, and Holland. They and Holland, SMS, yes, the most, not not the most, not the most, and uh, South Korea, of course, and Taiwan, of course, and United States, of course, but not yet in China. In other words, the the super advanced microchips that have uh, one quazillion, let's uh, uh, call it contacts. On, on the size of a, of a head pin that fits on the head of a pin. Okay, these things are not made in China. What, what does this do? These talks do to uh, Taiwan's application to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's a long, uh, a long name for, for for trade grouping, but nevertheless, they have applied, haven't they? As as has China um, as well. You know, when, when it comes to trade agreement, I always take a huge deep breath because uh, these things are much more memorandums of understanding mm. than actual uh, trade agreements. And, of course, the other part that has completely dropped off the horizon is, is all, all this is happening against trends that are severely detrimental to climate policies. And we cannot divorce the two things. You know, one of the major things that is being traded is energy. And all this, again, subsumes on the background. So in other words, if I buy a lot of cars, I automatically buy a hell of a lot of energy. And my question is, of course, should be how is this energy produced? Mm. Okay. Let's switch our attention to the mainland economy. China's reportedly planning a 230 billion US dollar fiscal stimulus to shore up its faltering economy. The China Securities Journal reported yesterday that local governments could issue an extra one and a half trillion yuan in special debt and bonds, which utilizes some of the unused bond quota from previous years to drive infrastructure investment should point out that Beijing hasn't actually officially uh, announced this news yet. But nevertheless, what, what do you make of this? Is this the right way to go or not? Well, Peter, very, very quickly, uh, I'm not going to give you an answer to that one, but I will simply say, yeah, central banks are all increasing interest rates. No, they are not. <laughs> People, Bank not of, China, People no. Bank of China just cut by 10 pay basis was hardly a huge movement, okay. But this obsession that everybody is concerned about uh, inflation misses out the two major economies in the world, <laughs> that is China and Japan. No, mm. they're not concerned. So the fiscal part of that uh, fits very nicely because uh, one would say, hang on a minute, this adds to... Uh, aggregate demand, and this could be bad for inflation. And incidentally, the, the grotesque inflation numbers that came out of the UK, guess which was the main culprit? <laughs> Energy. Mm. So, so much for increasing interest rates. The, the problem is, though, Carlos, isn't it? That it? It's not that there isn't enough money around. There's plenty of money around. You only have to look at that credit data uh, that, that came out last week. You know, banks are flush with cash. Uh, there, there's plenty of money in the system. It's just that people don't want to borrow it because they've lost so much confidence in the economy and particularly in the property market. Uh, they don't want to leverage up anymore. Mm, absolutely. So I think the issue in China is clearly not... Um, tight domestic liquidity. 
Um, in my opinion, the main issue in the domestic economy is sentiment um, mm -hmm. with zero COVID and um, you know, no end in sight to the housing sector slump. Um, naturally, Chinese households are postponing their decisions to invest and consume. And so you know, that won't change until there's uh, an inflection point in, in, on all fronts that are dragging on, on sentiment. Now, a 10 basis point rate, hike, rate cut um, doesn't really do much. Um, it would increase liquidity, but that is clearly not the issue. Um, however, it does um, send the message that the government is going to do you know, whatever it takes to ensure that um, this doesn't devolve into a bigger, broader systemic uh, decline in activity. So in terms of sentiment, I can see why they've done it. Um, it's, it's true, uh, like, like Andrew mentioned, that inflation is not a concern in China. However, um, I would argue that um, they really procrastinated until the end to implement this 10 basis point rate cut mm. because <laughs> they didn't want to do it did they they really? didn't want to do it they are worried that inflation will exceed PBOC's 3% target next mm. month and so this was really the last chance to sort of send that signal so for me it's a symbolic uh, rate cut more of most of the sort of impetus in the fourth quarter in particular i think the third quarter will be very sluggish with the political calendar that we we have ahead of us but in the fourth quarter, most of the impetus will come from uh, fiscal and infrastructure spending. And, and there is even room for that sort of policy in, in other parts of the world as well. But we are seeing China deploying it more proactively. Um, will it be significant enough to offset all of the headwinds that I've mentioned above with zero COVID and the housing sector slump? Probably not. Um, but it will be enough to ensure that there is some sort of more sustainable rebound towards trend in the fourth quarter, even if we don't see uh, stellar growth this so year. Have, have you changed your 2022 growth forecast for the Chinese economy now after all this data that we had earlier in the week? Um, I'm cautious, so I know the flavor of the week is to lower your GDP forecasts <laughs> with Goldman, Nomura, UBS, uh, <laughs> uh, all, all implementing cuts to their forecasts, some of, some of them actually for the second time this month. Um, I try not to f fall into that sort of game. I think the data was conflicting with better exports, weaker activity indicators, um, and we only have one month. Um, so I, I haven't. I've maintained my 3.7% growth forecast for this year, which is slightly below the consensus of 3.8%. But like everyone out there, I'm worried about these headwinds and if they're going to be able to reverse these. Uh, and with that sluggish Q3 um, in mind, I, I do expect some downside risks to our 3.7% number. What do you make, Andrew, of these these efforts to try and stabilise the uh, the property markets? The, the, the mainland authorities now seem to be switching their attention from homeowners, which was their main priority before, to the property developers themselves. And there is this rumour, it hasn't been confirmed yet either, that uh, they're, they're going to allow um, property developers to get sort of access to state-guaranteed loans or from, from state-backed uh, uh, state financial institutions. What do you make of that? There is a bifurcation of uh, Chinese attention to, to property and as you say politically sensitive was uh, the revolt of the mortgage payers and the homeowners uh, less politically sensitive is uh, the continuous suffering of the property developers so effectively what they're doing is not so much as a change of policy but uh, simply uh, grasping the volume controls of the property development side as opposed to the property owning side and uh, raise that uh, a, li a little bit. Don't forget, this relates also back 
to the interconnection. Uh, there was one particular case, come on, we all know about that, of the property developers that developed themselves into effectively bankers and asset managers. Mm, and this several was, of them. This was, this was, this was a case uh, that uh, could have, let's say, attracted their attention as far as the stability of the banking system is concerned, of which I raise again the old boring point the banking system in China, effectively, more than one-third of it is owned by the government in terms of the control of the assets. So it's not a matter that there is a stability of the banking in question because that becomes instantly a fiscal question. Mm. I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, the, the, the authorities are trying to pick uh, winners and losers here, aren't they? And they're, they're focusing on what they perceive as being the stronger uh, builders to, to go and guarantee loads for. They put Country Garden, for example, on the list. But uh-huh. are there any strong builders left? I mean, Country Garden issued a profits warning yesterday. Well, one hears consistently the number of uh, unoccupied or unsold flats. And that, of course, the distribution is highly regional. And uh, when I started to look at the regionality of it, uh, you know, my eyes glazed over because there wasn't really a significant pattern. In other words, if you say, well, if you take Sichuan and, uh, I don't know, outer Mongolia and you look after it, then you look after <laughs> the worst part of the, of the property market. Unfortunately, it's not like that. Carlos, you worry we're spreading the, uh, the risk around now. It's, it's moving, isn't it, from the property sector to the banking sector? Mm-hmm. I, I agree with, with everything that Andrew just said. Um, I don't know if this is... Uh, you know, going to turn into um, systemic risk for the economy, given that, um, you know, they, they have some buffers at their disposal. So, I mean, we were mentioning the fiscal side and and the banks being owned by the government and central government um, budgets that could be used to support uh, the sector if needed. But you also have the, the balance sheet of households. Remember that um, household debt has increased, but it remains lower than in other parts of the world, and um, especially lower than uh, what uh, you know households were experiencing in other property bubbles around the world: Spain, the U.S., Ireland, etc. So, I, I, I think that there are some buffers there. Um, it is, of course, uh, a, a housing sector slump by design. Remember that this is the result of the, the three, three rent policy, lines. exactly. Yeah. So, uh, they they could still do things to to uh, alleviate the pressure, but they have chosen to to choose this very targeted approach by picking winners and losers mm. so okay. I, I don't know if it's going to pay off but yeah this seems to be by design okay that's carlos casanova senior asia economist at ubp and you also heard andrew ferris the ceo of econosis advisory you're listening to money talk on rthk radio 3 825 on the phone from Mumbai, India is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. Um, so once again, inflation around the world very much in focus. The Reserve Bank of India has been talking about it uh, as well yesterday, haven't they? Making it clear that uh, targeting prices is their number one priority. Although the, the latest data seems to show that um, in inflation was coming down and getting under control. Yeah, I think uh, there was a comment on the RBI's bulletin um, published yesterday that they felt that uh, retail inflation had peaked uh, in uh, the previous two months, um, although still remains elevated above their target range, uh, um, above 6%, will come down over the course of the coming quarters into the second quarter of next year. But um, interesting as well, wholesale price index for the last two months sequentially has dropped as well. Um, 
so I think from the domestic front, there's a view the RBI says that uh, inflation may have peaked. But, of course, imported inflation is not a function of what happens in India. Um, so that still remains a concern for the RBI. So I su- suspect that they're still looking at potentially tightening. Um, but um, they're of a view that maybe we've already seen a peak, at least at the domestic level. Could be famous last words, couldn't it? Trying to predict a peak um, in inflation, even for central banks, is a, is a dangerous uh, game. Oh, indeed. Uh, I think it's, um, you know, you can see it through the Fed minutes during the week. You can see what's happening in the UK, for example, in terms of the, you know, inflation probably still yet to peak in, in, in those economies. Um, the likelihood that rates will continue, therefore, uh, and also the, the risks of commodity prices having a turn back to the positive, particularly if China starts to emerge and starts to, demand starts to increase. So there's a lot of factors. So to suggest that it has peaked mm. uh, and is, uh, is going to come down is probably, yeah, um, Optimistic, but I think you've got to reflect that on basis the domestic factors um, and also what's happening around the world for India. Uh, the one place where um, inflation was a shocker this week, you mentioned it, the UK. Uh, consumer prices rose 10.1% from a year ago. That's the first time inflation has been in double digits in the UK in 40 years now. I mean, this is classic stagflation now, isn't it? The economy is slumping, inflation is soaring, and, and the Bank of England seems uh, to be totally out of control in trying to contain it. Yeah, the UK is going to need all of that uh, traditional stiff upper lip, I think, uh, to manage um, the next uh, um, 18 months, uh, particularly as well. You've got a new prime minister to be elected uh, in the UK, um, and that's, um, you know, not necessarily a positive, uh, at least in terms of maybe some certainty, but uh, not necessarily in terms of outcome. But yeah, uh, I think they're expecting the central bank there to, to see inflation peaking at 15%, previously at 13% at a time when they're starting to see the economy really slow. Um, so tough times for the UK um, and a reflection of what can potentially happen to some of the other uh, developed economies if inflation isn't reined in quickly. Mm, it is a warning, isn't it, for other central banks. So what about the Fed? Uh, we had the minutes of their July meeting. The markets seem to focus um, really on just one paragraph or one sentence that said that uh, uh, the Monetary Policy Committee uh, thought it would become appropriate at some point to slow the pace of rate increases while they assess the impact on inflation. But then if you read the rest of the report, it was it seemed to me to be pretty hawkish. They were talking about, you know, they had a long, long way to go before they were on top of this. Yeah, I thought that the, the more relevant top uh, comments were, you know, inflation has to come down substantially mm. for the Fed to slow up uh, versus... Uh, you know, reflection. So the market, I think, has had a pretty good run, right? Uh, so the market's a little, got a little ahead of itself. I think we've seen a good rally in equities. And I think last couple of days and this week in particular, you've seen that's trying to consolidate. So maybe the market's getting a little bit more wise to what potentially the risks. But uh, it would suggest, at least in those minutes, that the Fed are nowhere near done mm. in terms of tightening. And with the economy in pretty good shape, the earnings season going well for the second quarter, uh, retail earnings and consumer sentiment still risk reasonably good. I don't see there's any reason why the Fed would uh, start to consider slowing up their, their cycle. Yeah, it seems to be very mixed economic data at the moment, doesn't it, out of, out of the US? We saw that uh, yesterday with the housing data, which was worse than expected, but then we had... Um, some manufacturing reports that came in better than expected. It, it seems, is, is this the reason why the rally that we've seen in the US, the S&P's up about, what, 17% so far since its, uh, its June low, it seems to be running out of steam. We, we just don't really know what's going to come next. Yeah, well, I think it's clear that data's uh, 
uh, is what everyone needs to look at because the Fed have said it themselves that you know um, they're going to have you know obviously going to adapt to what uh, data comes through. And the economy is going through transition, you know, from a, a one that was uh, driving hard on pent-up demand post-pandemic to one that is starting to slow up. And, of course, all the lags and all the leads that come through in any economic um, transition are hard to read. And we're right in the middle of that. So um, it's no surprise the market's uh, holding up and slowing down in terms of its enthusiasm because there are many, many risks still out there, both from uh, economic perspective and a geopolitical perspective. So... Um, hard to be totally optimistic. Um, having said that, uh, you know, the economy is still going pretty well despite the heavy inflation. Okay, Toby, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this week. Down in Australia, the ASX 200 is off about 0.1%. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan is up about a third of a percent. The Cosby is moving the other direction, down about a third of a percent. Uh, futures markets predicting a 70-point gain for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. And that's it for me this week. Have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned to Back Chat after the news with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast for today, sunny intervals and occasional showers, maximum temperature of around 30 degrees. Showers and thunderstorms tomorrow, those showers are going to ease off uh, gradually later on Sunday. The temperature right now, 27 degrees, 91% relative humidity. Time's coming up to 8.32. Here's Andrew Shorsky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. The United Nations chief, Antonio Guterres, has said the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant in Ukraine, seized by Russia, must not be a target for military operations. Speaking after talks in Ukraine with President Zelensky, he voiced grave concern about nuclear safety. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who was also at the meeting, warned of the danger of what he called another Chernobyl. In Washington, the State Department spokesman, Ned Price, voiced similar concerns. The United States condemns, in the strongest terms, Russia's reckless disregard for nuclear safety and security. Along with our allies and partners, we call on Russia to cease all military operations at or near Ukraine's nuclear facilities and to return full control of the ZNPP to Ukraine. We continue to support the efforts of the International Atomic Energy Agency to fulfill its safeguards mandate and to assist Ukraine with nuclear safety and security measures across its nuclear facilities. A judge in the U.S. has unsealed some of the documents which were presented before FBI agents were authorized to search Donald Trump's Florida home last week. These reveal some of the specific offenses the former president is alleged to have committed. The BBC's Chichi Zundu has more details. What has been released is more information on the warrant, which gives more detail on which specific crimes the Department of Justice are investigating against Donald Trump, including willful retention of national defense information and obstruction of a federal investigation. Now, this all came about after a group of media organizations asked a court to unseal details of the affidavit, which outlines the evidence the government had in order to obtain that warrant. The Department of Justice said it didn't want that being made public, but the judge said parts of it could be. He's given officials a week to make suggestions on which elements can be released and which should stay secret. Finland's Prime Minister Sanna Marin is facing backlash from critics after a leaked video showed her partying. The footage shows the Finnish leader drinking, dancing and singing with friends, including a number of celebrities. The BBC's Electra Smith has the story. 
Sana Marin has defended the video, which features several celebrity friends and is thought to have been leaked from social media. She said yes, she had been boisterous, but that she'd done nothing illegal. But Finland's youngest ever leader has been criticised. In one clip, the group can be heard singing using swear words and making apparent references to cocaine. It's not the first time the 36-year-old has had to defend her love of partying. Last year, she had to apologise for going clubbing in Helsinki, despite having been in contact with her foreign minister who had COVID. Beijing has warned the United States against making what it described as a wrong judgment after Washington agreed to initiate trade talks with Taiwan. At a press briefing, Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin called on the U.S. to stop its engagement with the island. You're listening to the news on RTHK.